This is Risky Women Radio, a show to connect, celebrate and champion women in risk, regulation and compliance. Sharing insight and perspective from the most influential members of our global Risky Women Network on the latest developments we need to think about, the challenges we should all talk more about and the innovation we are most excited about in governance, risk and compliance. Bringing together the hundreds of senior women professionals already connected with a new emerging group of leading women and men. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. Welcome to Risky Women Radio. Today's Risky Woman is Karen Kenny. Let me tell you a little bit about Karen before we hear from her. Karen has an incredibly impressive CV, and we've got many interesting areas to discuss. Karen Kenny serves as the attache at the US Embassy Croatia for the US Department of Justice's Office of Overseas Prosecutorial Development Assistance and Training. Whew, that's a bit of a mouthful. For Southeast Europe Regional Justice Sector Initiative, overseeing the anti-money laundering, asset forfeiture, anti-corruption and transnational organised crime portfolios. Previously, she served as the Attorney Advisor for General Counterterrorism Programs and served as the Resident Legal Advisor for two U.S. embassies. Karen is the recipient of the U.S. Department of State's Meritorious Honor Award for creating the U.S.-Bangladesh Bilateral Banking Sector Dialogue. In 2020, she designed and taught the first webinar for the U.S. Federal Prosecutors, Analysts and Investigators at the Department of Justice National Advocacy Centre and launched the first public-private fintech partnership dialogue. Prior to joining the Department of Justice, Karen was the Attorney Advisor for Money Laundering and Asset Recovery Section International Unit and from 2008 to 2009 was a Senior Justice Sector Consultant for the World Bank. In 2007, she was selected to serve as a US Supreme Court Fellow and in 2006 was named a Fulbright Scholar teaching criminal and constitutional law courses in Lithuania. Prior to that, she held roles in the US and has also taught in Switzerland. She's published multiple articles and lectured on fintech, anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing, combating wildlife trafficking, transnational crime, and constitutional law issues. So welcome, Karen. We have got a lot to get through. <laughs> First, may I commend you, Kimberly, for, for, for uh, all of those acronyms in the alphabet soup that sometimes dominates our government. Thank you so much. And yes, they, you must need they, a very big card to fit your title on. <laughs> <laughs> I just put on my card, Karen Kenny, public servant. Excellent. But thank you for it's an honor. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you today. Thank you. So there are so many highlights, even in that brief bio that I read out. So take us on your career journey. It's it's obviously been quite a ride. Give us some of the you know more detailed highlights. Sure. Thank you, Kimberly. And, and if I may, with your permission, uh, if I could start as a true attorney and just give a disclaimer that I'm delighted and honored to be on your uh, Risky Women today, but any of the thoughts or opinions I express are simply my own and do not reflect the official position of the U.S. Department of Justice or our embassies. Thank you. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> so my journey, uh, Kimberly, began. I'm a native New Yorker. 
And originally, I thought I was going to be an English professor. I have a great love for teaching and for interacting with the students. And following a fellowship that I received from NYU in New York, I was on my way. And then that pesky thing of having to get a job and support myself came into the picture. And I actually uh, started as a paralegal on the John Gotti prosecution in the United States. And there were a number of them, but this was the final prosecution in which John Gotti was convicted in the Eastern District of New York, one of our federal courts in the United States. John Gotti will be known to some from a, a recent movie, but more importantly, he was a major organized crime figure within New York. So as a paralegal, I was able to work up close with the assistant United States attorneys who were prosecuting him. And I found my place. I found my niche. I loved the courtroom. I loved this, uh, the, the quest for justice and decided I was now going to be a lawyer. So I put myself to law school at night. I worked nine to five during the day. And then I went a few blocks to uh, law school and sat in law school for three and a half years, graduated and got my dream job at the Manhattan DA, Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which I will share a tidbit. It is actually modeled on Law and Order, for those of you who may have been familiar with that TV show. And that was an amazing experience. I was a prosecutor dealing with all the crimes that occur in any major city, the robberies, the assaults, the attacks. And it's very dark in many ways, but it's also very light in many ways, because I found my true calling was I loved justice and I loved seeking justice. And justice is many things to different people. But I learned a great deal. That is a phenomenal office at the time. And following my experience trying cases and in the grand juries in Manhattan, I then became a federal prosecutor in Las Vegas, Nevada. Some of you may have heard of that. And therein, I found my second niche in that I really was very interested in financial crimes. And I began my career within the financial crime sector, combating, I should say, financial crime sector. I began with just uh, bank robberies, bank robbery squad working with FBI agents. Sadly, there were many bank robberies occurring in Las Vegas for a number of reasons and graduated over the course of a few years from learning, you know, learning my craft, which is critical to actually taking on very complex financial fraud schemes and Following that, after about three or four years, I went back a little bit to teaching, which was going to be my first career. And I started teaching night school at University of Las Vegas, Nevada. I had a fantastic chair there, Joe Lieberman, who is still there. And I began teaching uh, classes in organized crime and criminal procedure. And it was from there, I then was very honored to receive a Fulbright Fellowship, which is a flagship program with the State Department, and went to Lithuania and was a fantastic experience beyond compare and also learned a lot about the diplomatic world and the important part all of our embassies across the globe play in promoting peace and stability and democracy. Thereafter, I was a Supreme Court fellow, as you said, then the World Bank, and in the World Bank, I was working in this region with Croatia, Turkey, and Serbia, as they were all in the process of gaining accession to the EU. And then after that, I came back to the mothership, as I like to call Maine Justice, and had the honor of serving in money laundering asset recovery, working mostly in Latin America at that point, working with asset sharing, which I will not go into, but it's a very important tool that the Department of Justice and our State Department has to make whole victims of crime, specifically also money laundering crimes. And then I joined OPDET, which I can talk a little bit about later, but that is a fantastic section within the Department of Justice. We work very closely with our State Department. Um, and I served as a resident legal advisor, uh, first in Bangladesh and Dhaka, 
and then in uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And then now I am now sitting in Zagreb, Croatia, talking to you. And I'm taking a breath right now. And I don't know what the next step will be, but that's a little bit of my journey. That is amazing. That is amazing. And you've worked in so many kind of interesting places. So as we said, I think you're out definitely our first guest from Zagreb. <laughs> it's, so, it's a fantastic city and country. I, I, get, I urge everyone to come visit when, when times are safe. And really interesting, all of the kind of areas that you get involved in, and especially some of those will be fascinating for our risky women around financial crime and, and fraud schemes and all of those type of things. So tell us a bit about your role now and what you're doing now. So now I'm starting with the Department of Justice as OPDATS, a regional advisor for Southeast Europe. And my, my role now, two days into it, is to work with our counterparts, both U.S. and regional, a number of regional countries, work with their justice sector, their judges, their prosecutors, their law enforcement, and very importantly, the central banks and FIU, and working as partners to bridge the gaps that divide us to work towards a common good in combating uh, money laundering, tax evasion, you know, a number of issues. And it's creating relationships, Kimberly, which I'm, I'm very much a proponent of. Everything starts with relationships and combating those bad actors that seek to infiltrate and subsequently destroy our, our financial sectors. Fascinating. And, and we'll get a bit more into our topic for the day, which will be around building connections and how collaboration can really drive transformation. But sort of thinking more about your, you know, career, if you weren't doing what you're doing now, and you spoke about teaching as as part of an option, what would have been your dream career? If I had a dream career, I'm very lucky because I, I love what I do and I love incorporating in the uh, diplomatic world with the justice world. So I'm very, very fortunate and I'm blessed. But if I could have one talent, which I will readily admit I do not, it would be to be a poet. Because I truly believe that poetry is a positive factor for change. And poetry speaks to us. And as I said, I was almost an English professor. And one of the things that made me think of this, Kimberly, was recently with the recent inauguration of U.S. President Joseph Biden. During the inauguration ceremonies, there was a fantastic young woman named Amanda Gorman, who is the first ever youth poet laureate for the United States. And she brought to poetry the entire vibrancy of the new world, if you will. And her uh, recitation of The Hill We Climb gave me chills. It was amazing. Absolutely. And I at yeah, it was yeah, just I, amazing, wasn't it? <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah. And I looked at her and I wanted to cry. I wanted to laugh. I wanted to clap. It was Jill Biden, actually the president's wife, the first lady, Dr. Jill Biden, who had actually first uh, had encountered Amanda and then asked her to uh, recite at the inauguration, but I thought when I watched that, I said, Lord, if I had a dream career, wouldn't that be amazing to go and use that, that energy and that creative talent to spread hope? So I will leave it at that. Fascinating. And then what do you think are the biggest risks that you've taken in your career and then did they pay off? Yes, I think looking at the biggest risks, I think it's what we all face as women and is stepping out of the boxes, the pre-prepared boxes that people want to place us in. And what are those boxes are determined by the way you look, 
the way you speak, where you went to school, your accent. I have a New York City accent. I'm very proud of it, Kimberly. Uh, but people want to file you away because it's just human nature. And for me, it's always been defining for myself. What do I want to be? How do I want to live my life? So when I look at that, it would definitely be the fact that I want to, the biggest adventure I've had, I'd call it an adventure as well, is stepping out of my comfort zone. And for me, I jumped out of my comfort zone. I went so far and did so many different things. And sometimes it has been a fantastic experience for the most part, absolutely. There's also been bad experiences in there too, Kimberly, because that, that is the, the mixture of life, the good and the bad. But I would say that's what it is, is stepping out of my comfort zone, putting myself into situations where I love not being the smartest person in the room. I love meeting other people. I like to listen. And you do that by seeking answers. So I guess I'm a seeker. That's great. And it probably leads nicely into what I was going to ask you next, which is, you know, what have been some of the most important lessons that you've learned along the way? I would have to say three. And two are more humanitarian-based, Kimberly. And then one is specifically with, you know, my, my role as a prosecutor with the United States Department of Justice and my prior experience. First, what I've learned, whether it's New York City or Dhaka, Bangladesh, or a Kampong, which is a village in Malaysia or Hong Kong, all the places I've been in the globe, that people are basically the same. They have the same sense of dignity. They have the same wants. They have the same needs. They have the same hopes. So although many things divide us, Kimberly, whether it's politics or religion, we have many divisive forces, but at its whole, what I've learned around the globe is that everyone wants a better life for their children than they've had. And everyone wants to feel secure in their home, in their job, in their government. So that to me was, it's a kind of um, all-inclusive view of people. And that's something I've definitely learned in my journey along the way. I call these things pebbles. And as I walk along, it equates almost, if you will, to a beach. And as you walk along, there's millions of pebbles. But once in a while, you stop, you look at one, you put it in your pocket, and you take it with you. So this uh, people can be that or concepts. So that's the first concept. Uh, The second one that I would say what I've learned is that it's so important to connect with people, specifically myself. I am a huge proponent of empowering women, empowering all people who seek a better life. And then finally, this is my justice, prosecutorial viewpoint. Kimberly, people cheat, steal, and lie the same all over the world. No one has a no one has a single entry pass to that. We just do it in different ways. It's our human nature. And that's why with the Department of Justice and others, it's our job to uh, to tackle that, investigate it, tackle it, and prosecute it. Okay. Now let's move on because you've sort of led into this, but this whole concept of building connections and talking about how collaboration can transform the way we do things. So at the moment, what are the biggest trends that you're sort of seeing in the in the regulatory landscape and where you see collaboration could really improve outcomes in the sort of especially in some of the areas that you're working in around financial crime? Absolutely. I think that the biggest trends are ones that we're seeing every day. They're not the newest, but they continue to be the kind of watershed moments in the financial landscape. And these are things that are familiar to all of your listeners. AI, the blockchain. What I find very, very interesting as well, fintech, obviously, but also the implications of the open banking era. And then finally, the the, the relationship 
that is still being created between, you know, instead of fintech, it's tech fin. The impact of these large uh, technology companies that are becoming finance, that which are not becoming, they are financial vehicles. And how do those two worlds, how do they meet? And when they meet, how do we then regulate it to make sure that it is a positive joining, if you will, of those two areas? Yeah, that's really interesting how you join those together. And then in terms of collaboration, you know, I think it's like everything else, you're looking at a balance. You're looking at, again, the theme of our, we've been speaking about in terms of collaboration, looking at regulatory authorities and also law enforcement and others, looking at using the tools that we have already, such as sandboxes, you know, innovation, innovation events, and making those, incorporating those into the framework of what we do so that we're not just using, for example, sandboxes to see what the latest application that a developer wants to introduce, but we also need to use the sandboxes to learn what's happening out there. What are the emerging trends? What's happening when the rubber hits the road at exactly that right time? And as regulators, government authorities, we're not on the fast lane, right? That's the entrepreneurs. They're moving fast. They're breaking things. You know, our role is to protect and to take a look at whatever, let's say, the product may be. They're moving fast. We need to say, that's fantastic. We want to promote innovation, but we also must take the time to understand it and then to make sure that we protect the economy and the, and the users of that. So to collaboration and, and really utilizing sandboxes and innovation labs in a very positive way for re- regulators to inform and uh, educate themselves as well. Looking at those trends and building connections and building bridges, you've done a fair amount of work around public-private collaboration. So that sharing you mentioned as being important, how important is that in your view? I think it's critical because I think if we look at the public and the private sector, and specifically when I speak about it, it's from the perspective of prosecutorial and Department of Justice and others, We cannot see ourselves as two enemy camps. If we look at ourselves in that way, then we have already decided that what the narrative will be. So I think that if you can take a smaller group, sit down, listen to each other's concerns, we learn more. And for myself, I find that the public-private partnerships have been an excellent tool. I don't make them huge with 350 people in the room. There's a place for that. But the way I approach it is getting to keep people at the table. So, for example, when I did the public-private partnership, I developed one with the banks in Bangladesh. And at that point, I went literally with a fantastic young woman who works for Wells Fargo, Shanaz Sultana, who's an excellent partner. She took me and we knocked on the doors of the CEOs of the leading banks in Dhaka, Bangladesh. And we said, we would like you to sit at a table with some of our regulators, and we wanted discussion. We're not interested in finding out about cases. We're not using this as a lead-in to find, well, just tell us, what are you seeing? And we'll tell you why, when there, all these regulatory mandates come out, why it's happening. It's not to make your life harder. We don't sit up at night and think how we can really <laughs> make more and more issues for you. It's really due to the fact that we are trying to understand each other so that we can work towards a more productive, efficient, transparent, financial sector. That's that's fantastic. You've obviously worked on several of these kind of projects throughout your career. Are there others that you would also sort of call out that have created that kind of impact? 
Yeah, I will. And if I may, for a moment, uh, take off my financial hat and put on more my diplomatic Department of Justice hat. When I was in Malaysia, I had the good fortune of working with a former chief justice there, Richard Malanjo, who was a Malaysian, but also a member of the Khadizan tribe, which is one of the indigenous tribes in Borneo. And he was the first ever chief justice in Malaysia to come from an indigenous tribe. And through him, he taught me and his judges, he taught me the lesson of the access to justice, how important that is. And it's almost the same as the access to financial sector. If you don't have access to the financial sector, you don't have access to justice, then you are cut out and you begin, you know, already 10 feet, you know, below the starting line. And one of the things I did with the Malaysian judiciary and the chief justice was we went into very remote villages in Borneo, where you either had to walk in Kimberley, you had to row yourself in by boat or be dropped by a helicopter. And we went into these very rural communities and the Malaysian judges brought the courts to them. So they would set up courts and whatever was a schoolhouse there. And then the people would come in with various issues and they would hold court without, you know, some of these places had no electricity, you know, very rural but again, people had the same kind of problems you and I would have in a metropolitan setting. And to me, I slept in a tent on a mountainside, and I thought it was one of the best things I've ever done. So that's the, the two hats. Fabulous, fabulous. And where do challenges still remain and that we really need to sort of see more knowledge exchange? I think that one of the things I was just reading about this morning, reading an article from the U.S. Uh, US authorities, was that there needs to be clear rules as to cryptocurrency, and that urgently needs to happen because we have major companies that are embracing these assets. And if we don't have those rules, then we get ahead of ourselves. And if we get ahead of ourselves, then that we're going to run into to problems and issues. I think that is a main issue, one of the challenges, and which is happens when you have a new landscape. There's always going to be a catch-up phase to it. And then also one of the challenges, I think, is from a legal point of view as well, is the jurisdictional. So who is going to have jurisdiction? And when I say that, I speak in terms of the courts. The court, a functioning, efficient, transparent court administrative system is incredibly important to a solid financial um, economy in any country. In terms of jurisdiction, Right now in the United States, there is a question being decided by our federal courts as to who has jurisdiction over neobanks. So that is banks, I'm sure as your audience is well aware of neobanks, there's banks that do not have a physical presence and it's purely digital. And the issue right now is who controls the bank charters? Who's going to charter these neobanks? Who's going to control them? And in the US, the issue is, will it be the office of the controller of the currency, which is our federal bank regulator, or will it be by our states? We have all of our states. So there's, it was an issue that began with the New York State Department of Financial Services, the Lacewell case. And it has progressed in the number of uh, years since, and it's still being played out. But I think that's one of the challenges. We have to find out who has control, Kimberly, who is going to be the regulatory oversight, and what does that mean? And I think that is a key challenge, which is playing out right now, and it's very interesting. 
Yeah, and look, you've been doing a lot of work around helping educate on fintech and regtech and all of the developments. And I know you've got a an article that you co-authored with two other um, DOJ women that's titled Introduction to Fintech Ecosystem. I think it's due to be published in March, so we look forward to sharing that with our audience as well. So tell us a bit more about, you know, that article, what you've been doing in the education around fintech and regtech and how you've done some of those initiatives. Sure. And actually, the article hopefully will be published within the next three months or so, and it'll be published within the U.S. Department of Justice's Journal of Federal Law and Practice, which is available to the public. And it's an introduction to fintech, as you said, and I had the fantastic experience working with two fellow women from the Department of Justice, uh, Jill Rose, who's the Deputy Chief of DOJ Opdat, and then Kelly Andrews, who's no longer with the department, but just an amazing experience. And I've also taught the first webinar class at our National Advocacy Center on the introduction to fintech. So the reason I did that, honestly, Kimberly, was that when I was based in in, uh, Malaysia, I should say, in Asia, which is really a driving force with the fintech sector across the globe, I was learning so much. And I, who I like to keep up with what's happening in developments, I didn't know a lot about this sector. And I thought to myself, well, if I don't know a lot about it, maybe others, you know, maybe my colleagues, maybe they do. But if they don't, then I want to fill in that gap because as the Department of Justice, as a prosecutor, you know, just as a anyone who is working in the enforcement regulatory landscape, if you do not understand a sector, then that is a it's a danger because ignorance means you miss things and then that can turn into a lot of problems. So I wanted to educate myself so that when we're looking at these type of cases that are coming in, we understand, Kimberly, what we're looking at. We understand uh, the problems that could arise from it. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to step back and do an introduction. I'm going to share what I have learned from the basics of you know, going through the, the fintechs. You know, what's the culture of the fintechs? How does that differ from the traditional financial uh, structure? What's the difference between a front and back office? You know, What are the words that we hear all the time? We don't know what it means. What's a unicorn? Before I did this, I thought a unicorn was a sticker on a little girl's bed. And now I'm learning, well, it's a lot more complex than that. So I wanted to share that with my colleagues and with others. So that's why I've done it. Excellent. Well, we look forward to uh, seeing the article and reading it. I still think there's, you know, plenty of room for education in that space. And in thinking about the future, which we always like to do, a bit of a look forward, what do you think is going to make the biggest impact? I think the biggest impact within the financial sector from my perspective is right now, and using an an American iconography, it's a bit of the Wild West, okay? There's a lot of players in town and different things that are happening, and it's interesting and uh, dynamic, but we're looking to see what's going to happen when the dust settles. When it settles, where does it settle and where are we headed? I don't read tea leaves, so I don't know what's going to happen right now. I just know we're in the midst of it. And that's going to be the the biggest impact because that future is happening now, Kimberly, and it's going to continue to happen. And then I would say the other issue with perspective of looking at it from a prosecutorial point of view is the choke point is going to be the exchanges. And with this, I'm talking about the cryptocurrencies and the digital currencies. Let's talk about the exchanges and how can they be regulated? And then how do we then factor into that formula decentralized exchanges? 
How do we look at that? And how do we strike a balance between a privacy due process, but also enforcing the laws so that we protect our economy and, and protect our consumers? So I think those are going to be the challenges, continue to be the challenges. And I do think we could almost have a couple of other sessions to really dig into those issues. <laughs> so big topics. Then back to sort of transformation. What transformation do you sort of see that you would envision for the future in terms of how things are done, what's going to happen given all of these challenges? In terms of transformation, I would have to say that we are always in a stage of transformation. That is just who we are as uh, human beings. But right now, I think the transformation is going to outplay based on COVID as well, Kimberly. It's really changing our world in, in many sad ways, you know, the loss of life and all of those negative implications, but also the way we work, Kimberly, the way we communicate. And I think that is going to continue to play out in the future. And it's, I think that if we look at the way we lived our life and worked in the financial sector and otherwise before March of, uh, you know, uh, 2020 and today and five years from now, we might not even recognize it. I say, oh, yeah, those were the old days. I remember that. I remember going into meetings and sitting down. And I think also a transformative tool will be things such as the OPDAP program, where we the OPDAP program run by the Department of Justice, but it's funded by the State Department, working within U.S. embassies abroad. And specifically now at the U.S. Embassy in Croatia, it's been a fantastic experience. That outreach between our diplomatic, law enforcement, and private sector community, I think that's going to grow as well because people are always seeking connections, Kimberly, and, and we're always seeking answers. And I think we need to come together as much as COVID and other things have pushed us apart. I think that this is going to push us back together. So Fingers crossed for being <laughs> connecting back together. Um, and, and then just sort of, sort of finish on a, on a sort of slightly different tangent, but what have you learned recently that really blew you away? Kim, I have to tell you that, you know, every day I open the, uh, the newspaper online and I'm just blown away. But one <laughs> of the things I actually was really blown away by was the latest tweet by Elon Musk, which had the picture of, you know, Elon Musk, you know, holding, I think it was uh, Gene Simmons holding Snoop Dogg, who's holding the uh, Dogecoin meme. And it's all replicating or take a riff on the Lion King. And I just saw that and I said, this is fantastic. Separate and aside from what's happening with Dogecoin and all of those issues. But if you told me there was going to be a tweet with Elon Musk, Snoop Dogg and Gene Simmons of Kiss, that blew me away. <laughs> but music unites, as does money. <laughs> Very true. Well, that yeah, that's a, a certainly a, a change in tack on that one. So now we go into... Rants and Revelations. Connecting, celebrating and championing women in risk regulation and compliance, Rescue Women Radio takes an intimate look at the rants and revelations of the top women shaping the debate and the industry. This is one of my favourite sections <laughs> of, the, of the podcast. So, What's a revelation for you? What's the best piece of advice that you've ever received that you'd like to share with the audience? 
Thank you, Kimberly. It wasn't given to me personally. I wish it was, but it's a quote by Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a a diplomat and activist, had many roles. One of them was also being married to a United States president, but a fantastic woman, interesting woman. And the one thing she said that I heard when I was very young and has always stayed with me is she said, do one thing every day that scares you. Do one thing. And she was not talking about something that would put your life in danger. She was talking about doing one thing that scares you because when you confront that fear, then it doesn't have a hold on you anymore. And for me, when I was in high school, I was very concerned about public speaking. You know, it made me very nervous. I had to get in front of the classroom. And I remember my mother told me, she's like, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, do one thing that scares you. I got up there and I did it. It wasn't a work of art, Kimberly. It was a little messy, but I did it. And then, you know, 20 years later, I'm speaking to 700 people in the audience at Thomson Reuters giving the keynote address. So, And I remember that and you were fantastic. (laughs) Ah, You're a good woman. And I got to meet you. So it worked out fantastic all around. It was great. (laughs) Excellent. Um, and then what's your rant? We always, this side, we seem to have lots of uh, ideas of, of, you know, if you had your magic wand, if you're going to pick one thing you were going to change, what's that going to be? If I had a magic wand in speaking from the financial sector perspective, it would be to break down the silos. What frustrates me and vexes me, if I may, is uh, people who view power, connections, or knowledge as a limited supply. And don't want to share it with others because I think it decreases that. That vexes me. It's, it's, it's when you share your knowledge, you share yourself, you share your time, Kimberly, that's truly when you are wealthy and when you are successful. So let's wave that wand. Let's then get rid of all the people who see knowledge and sharing contacts, et cetera, as a limited, valuable tool that has to be protected. Let's wave our wand and get rid of them. Fabulous. I love it. So, And it brings us right back to our connections and transformation as well. So excellent. Risky Women is a vibrant network at the centre of a global community in a rapidly growing, evolving and influential industry. Given the continued pace of change, our Rapid Fire Round revisits the most pressing topics to share ideas and offer listeners new perspectives. All right, we're into the rapid fire round. Uh-oh. So, Uh-oh. Yep, exactly. It's like pop quiz for you. All right, I'm ready. Wait on me. All right. One word to describe the world of governance, risk, and compliance. Dynamic. Oh, I like it. One word. What is the biggest risk for our industry? Complacency. Nice. And the most important focus for the future. The most important focus is going to continue to be maintaining, adopting and maintaining a global perspective. We need to really think about financial markets across the globe, not just in our own backyard. And also innovation. We have to continue to adopt our regulatory controls as well that is occurring with innovation. And we have to continue to be resilient. You know, that's kind of the buzzword probably for the last year is resiliency, which can have many forms, mental health, physical health, but also within the employment sector, it's resiliency. And as we, many women know as well, you have to, you know, many times transform and reinvent yourself. And we do that. 
And that comes from a deep well of resiliency, which is built within each of us. And if we don't have it, we can definitely then learn how to, how to gain it. Are you optimistic, pessimistic, or neutral in your outlook for the year ahead? Kimberly, there's all choices and I choose hope. I am optimistic. And as my, my wonderful grandmother would say, she said, it is better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. You nice. have to light a candle. Right nice. now, it's a lot of darkness. We will see it through. So I am optimistic for both the markets, because we're in such a transformative time right now, that the dust will settle and we will have... Uh, really new dynamic tools to help with financial inclusion and other issues. And then also just for our world and our people that uh, we will be able to overcome the virus. And then what word represents success for you? Okay, I'm going to I'm going to ask you if I can fudge it a little bit. And I'm going to put a hyphen in between three words, if that's acceptable. But that's a lawyer, right? Go you for it. Find you go for it. <laughs> Create your own rules. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say, and I'll put in the hyphen. Service hyphen to hyphen others, service to others. That's my success. If you have skills and talents, then I think serving others with sharing that with the world and with those around you, that to me is success. Well, that's a good one then. So what's your top skill needed for the future? Adaptability. You have to adapt as quick changes and Human beings like stability. We like stability in our financial markets. We like stability, but we have to adapt. And if we do not adapt, we will be left behind. And then we just like to end on a couple of risky women recommendations. So we'd like you to share a book to read, something worth watching, and your favorite podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, the favorite book to read, and I am a, a voracious reader. I love it. But what I've read most recently, which profoundly impacted me and touched me, which is truly the, the uh, hallmark of an excellent book, was Promise Me Dad by Joe Biden, our President Joseph Biden. And it was an incredibly insightful, touching, candid view of how he, President Biden, and his family struggled with handling not only the pressures and challenges that came with being a vice president, but also at the same time confronting the cancer of his son, Bo, who, who very tragically ultimately passed away. And what's interesting, Kimberly, at the end of that book, he explains why he chose not to run in the prior presidential election, because he didn't think it was the right time. And it's just very interesting to read that now following his appointment as the president of the United States. So Promise Me Dad, fantastic book. In terms of TV, I'm going to do throwback. It's like throwback Thursday, right? Let's throw back. Let me give a parental warning. This is a gritty TV show. It's not for those of the faint of heart or the minors. But if you really want to watch a TV show that is really going to show you what happened on the street and how you really do a financial investigation, I highly recommend The Wire. The Wire, W-I-R-E. It began as an HBO program. And it started with looking at a fictionalized version, which was very close to reality, of investigating a drug operation, drug kingpin operation. And then ultimately, it turns into a fantastic portrayal of a money laundering investigation. And there's this fantastic character, Lester Freeman, who says in this kind of iconic clip, he says, if you want to you know, get the drugs, you follow the drug dealers. But if you want to follow the money, you don't know where it's going to go. 
I'm paraphrasing because there's a little bit more livid um, vocabulary in that quote because it is gritty. But that is a fantastic way to understand at a very base level, uh, I shouldn't say base level, but a very realistic level of how you turn one investigation into a very effective money laundering investigation and truly get the kingpins and not those on the uh, lower levels. So The Wire, it's a great watch. Interesting. And then your favorite podcast? My Lord, Miss Kimberly, it is definitely Risky Women. And I have, I'm very serious, Kimberly. Thank you. You are truly a mentor. When I first met you at Thomson Reuters, you sought me out. You sat down. You shared with me your knowledge. You embrace women within the financial sector and you do it simply because it is who you are. You, you have no other expectations other than opening up this world to more women who are seeking a, a foot place in the, uh, in the financial sector. So, And the fact that you're even doing this podcast and you started this podcast, Kimberly, that is also my kudos to you. And I shan't clap because I know that will interfere with the audio, but I will. Claps to you. So definitely risky women. Well, thank plus you. I enjoy spending time with you. Exactly. Well, that's part of the delight of Risky Women Radio. I get to speak to amazing women. So it's all part of the connecting, celebrating, championing. And I just hear so many interesting stories. And as you say, I learned so much along the way as well. So I'm so glad that we could connect and and we thought we were going to be speaking from Hong Kong to Malaysia, but no, we're Hong Kong to Croatia. (laughs) So, you know, it doesn't matter where we are, we can connect across the globe. And it's been an absolute pleasure to do this session of Risky Women Radio. So thank you. Thank you, Kimberly. It's fantastic spending time with you. I appreciate it. And uh, all my best to you, your family and your listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this exciting episode of Rescue Women Radio to connect, champion and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance. I'm Kimberly Cole, based in Hong Kong. For more information on the Risky Women Global Network, head to our website in the episode notes and please be part of the ongoing conversation by subscribing to this podcast, connecting with us at Risky Women on Twitter, or even reaching out to me directly by email.